Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts one more time as we come before God's word together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you once again that it is true. Lord, this isn't just a collection of fables and interesting quaint stories. But Lord, this is life-changing. Because this has come directly from your heart to us. And we thank you, Father, that you have ensured that your word has been passed down through the centuries faithfully. So that what we have today is what you spoke to your servants in those days of old. And this morning, Father, as we study this Gospel of Mark, Lord, teach us, we pray. Help us to understand the lessons that you have for us to learn. For, Lord, we want to grow in knowledge and grace. Father, we don't want to stay where we are. And so, Lord, once again, we pray you challenge us. But, Lord, also that you comfort us and encourage us as we continue our journey and our walk with you. And, Lord, we just pray now your blessing upon this study of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we are up to the Gospel of Mark. Mark typically is uh, uh, the gospels presented as uh, the servants' gospels, presenting Jesus as a servant, and we'll see that as we go through this morning. Um, if we just take a, a brief look at the New Testament in its entirety, I mean, last week we got as far as uh, Matthew, so we're into the New Testament now. We've got, as it were, the five gospels, or if you like, we've got four gospels uh, with Luke part one and then Luke part two being the book of Acts. Um, in some ways, it kind of mirrors the Pentateuch in the Old Testament. We've got those five books that start the Old Testament uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those five books. And then we've got these five books also that start the New Testament Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. We then move on, and we've got the 13 epistles of Paul, starting with Romans and going on through down, ending in Philemon. Now, there are some that believe that Paul is the author of Hebrews. Um, I think looking at the, the arguments for that, that's very, very likely indeed. Um, but we then have, after Paul's 13 epistles, we have um, seven, sorry, eight Hebrew epistles. So these are the uh, epistles directed at the Jews primarily. Um, so the Hebrews, uh, book of Hebrews, James, first and second. Peter, first, uh, second, and third John, and then the book of Jude. And then finally, one prophetic book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. So that gives us what we have in the New Testament. Now there's lots of question marks and controversy over times of writing and all sorts of things. And if you look at various commentaries, you'll get to see some of the ideas that are put forward. And many people will tell you that Mark's gospel was written much later. And then they'll tell you Matthew's gospel, as we mentioned last week, was um, much later. Some even go as far as saying it was second century. It was a long way away from the original. Well... If you uh, start doing some diligent study, you'll find there's compelling evidence to support the, the fact that all of the books of the New Testament were written very, very close to the events themselves. Um, Thessalonians was written in the spring of AD 50 to 51. First Corinthians, uh, the spring of AD 55. Uh, interesting, interesting just to mention this as well with Thessalonians. It's the kind of the first of Paul's letters in terms of the chronology of when they were written. It's just interesting Paul's subject matter. Because he deals with the second coming. He deals with the rapture of the church. You know, something that a lot of the church today will tell you is not important. It's the first thing that Paul chooses to write about. I kind of like that. In 1 Timothy, uh, we find uh, the fall of, uh, the autumn of uh, uh, AD 55, 2 Corinthians, spring of AD 56, and then Galatians, uh, again in the autumn of AD 56, Romans, into the spring of AD 57, Titus, the autumn of AD 57, uh, Philippians, 
uh, the summer of AD 58, Colossians uh, and Ephesians the same, and then Second Timothy in the autumn of AD 58. So that's kind of Paul's writings. The other New Testament books were James somewhere between AD 47 and 48. I mean, this is just, you know, 15, 20 years from the time of Jesus, from the time of the crucifixion and the resurrection onwards. Uh, Jude, uh, AD 61. Uh, Peter, uh, AD 61 to 62, uh, Acts, uh, AD 57 to 62, First, Second, Third John, uh, a little bit later, AD 60 to 65, uh, First Peter, spring of uh, AD 65, and then the Gospels, all of them written from AD 40 to AD 65. That's within seven years, or seven to eight years of the events actually taking place. These things are finally recorded. Now, prior to that, there was documentary uh, fragments that we found to show that there was, in a sense, draft copies, that Matthew, no doubt, was scribbling down the things that he was reading. Mark uh, starts to put together his gospel, but the, the completed works within 20 years or so of the events taking place. Now, you think back 20 years ago. I can remember quite clearly events of 20 years ago. It doesn't seem that long ago. You know, we're sitting here 2014. You know, you think of um, 94, 95, the things that were going on then. You know, you can think probably way back to the, you know, the early 80s, and that doesn't seem that long ago. If you were to ask to write, be asked to write down some of the things you remember from that time, you'd be able to write it down quite comfortably. And everybody around us knows those, the, the events historically that have happened in our lifetime. You know, it, it's incredible that people start to question uh, the integrity of Scripture when you start to look at these things. So I just tell you that because, again, you'll, you'll find people that will tell you there's a lot of, uh, they'll give you late dates for these things. The last book of the, the Bible, uh, the book of Revelation, somewhere around about AD 95, uh, right at the end of John's time and ministry and so on. Um, so that's the last book that was written. Um, but the Gospels and that which we're looking at now uh, are certainly very close to the event. So we have a very accurate record of these things. So, Well, the Gospel of Mark then, we're going to go through this this morning. Now last week we looked at this design. Uh, we spent really most of the, the session last time in Matthew's Gospel looking at the incredible design that we see. Um, we, we studied verse by verse through Matthew, Matthew's Gospel not too long ago. And so last week the focus was on the way that God has engineered things behind the text and through the text that we could have never imagined or put there. And we see these types and these shadows. And we see, of course, with the Gospels themselves, that there's a very deliberate structure. We have, as some people have put it, that it's not so much four Gospels, but a fourfold presentation of Jesus Christ. Matthew presents Jesus as the Messiah, the, the, the King, the one that's coming from the line of Abraham. Mark presents Jesus as a servant. And interestingly, there's no genealogy given in Mark. In Luke, we find that Jesus is presented as the Son of Man, the perfect man. Descendant from Adam, we have the genealogy back to Adam. And then John's Gospel presents Jesus as the Son of God, the Eternal One, the pre-existent One. And we see that everything uh, in these Gospels fits in with uh, those kind of themes as well. Matthew is very much about what Jesus said. Mark, we're going to see this morning, is very much what Jesus did, is the actions uh, that went on. So we're going to go through these things. Mark's Gospel seems to be very much a presentation, not to the Jews, as Matthew had done, but to the Romans. Um, and we'll see some obvious reasons for that. Uh, the first miracle we're going to see in the book of Mark is a demon uh, being cast out. And it ends with the ascension 
Um, and again, we have the, the camp in the wilderness. We have the faces of the cherubim we've talked of before, the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle. Well, the one that's analogous to the Gospel of Mark is the ox, one of the faces of the cherubim, the standard, uh, the, the tribal standard for the tribe of Ephraim on the west side of the, the camp in the tabernacle, uh, camping around the tabernacle. And of course, an ox is a beast of burden, it's a servant. Uh, and you see, even in those types, everything uh, fits together by design. And Mark typically, we'll see, focuses very much on snapshots. It's kind of like a shooting script, as some have put it. Um, whereas Matthew gives us a lot of the discourses and a lot of the details, Mark's gospel, actually, although the shortest, um, if we'd had recorded in Mark's gospel the actual discourses that we have in some of the others, Mark will be longer than any of the other gospels with the content he gives us. So it's a very important gospel uh, for many reasons. Well, Mark himself uh, was a cousin of Barnabas. Uh, We find later, we're told that in the book of Acts, a son of Mary. But we're not sure which Mary, but we're just told that Mary was uh, uh, his mother. Uh, He served with Paul and Barnabas uh, for a short time before defecting. Now, you may be familiar with this. You remember the account from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 15, picking up verse 37, we read, And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. So this is his cousin, he wants to take him along in this missionary journey. But Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them, um, from Pamphylia, and went not with them to the work. So Paul's concern was, look, he came with us last time, and it was too much for him, and he went home. I'm not going to take him with us. And we end up with this contention that we read about, and it's such a, a sharp contention that we read, that Barnabas and Paul part company. And Paul goes off then with uh, um, Silas, and then we find that Mark and Barnabas obviously go off for ministry as well. And it's one of those questions, who was right? Well, I think they were both right. And I think what, ended up, what God ended up doing here was end up with two wonderful missionary teams rather than just the one. And it's a very interesting study to look at it and, uh, and so on. Barnabas, we find, was this great encourager. And he wanted to encourage Mark. And he was absolutely right to say what he said, I believe, and to encourage Mark and not to just push him aside because he'd given up in the past. No, no, we we need people around us like Barnabas that will encourage us when we feel like giving up. But Paul, on the other hand, also, I believe, was right. Because Paul was saying, you cannot quit. This is a race that we're not in just to give up. We can't just say this is too hard and walk away from it. And I think Paul's view and perspective is also valid. And I think that both of those things should apply in our life. We can, we, in a sense, we need around us a Paul who's going to push us and encourage us to take that next step, that step of faith that we're not really ready for, maybe. But we also need people like Barnabas to help us. And when we feel like giving up, just to put their arm around us and say, come on, let's go together. So... This is a, a bit of the background of Mark. Well, eventually, Mark, we're told, becomes profitable to Paul. So as things go on, and uh, Barnabas' influence, no doubt, helps Mark kind of get things sorted out in his own life. Uh, later, Paul himself, in 2 Timothy 4, says that Mark is profitable to him. But interestingly, there's a strong bond that also develops between Peter and Mark. And maybe in this, it's interesting, Peter might see his own reflection in this young man. You remember Peter, of course, this one who... Kind of says he's going to do everything. You know, Lord, we're going to die for you. And he gets his sword out, he chops off the high priest's servant's ear, and within a few hours, he's kind of cowering before the questioning session of a servant girl in the courtyard. You know, maybe Peter sees a little bit of Mark in him, that, you know, Mark had, you know, gone out with all great intentions of going on this missionary journey and then suddenly got to the point of, I can't do this. So maybe Peter sees a bit of his own reflection there. 
Peter, uh, writing affectionately of Mark in his uh, first epistle, in 1 Peter 5.13, he refers to Mark as my son. So Peter seems to also have taken Mark under his wing. Now, that's quite interesting in itself, for reasons we'll mention in just a moment. Chuck Mizzle makes this comment. He says, um, Mark 10.17-22 relates the rich young ruler questioning Christ about what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. That's interesting in itself, isn't it? The, the question is put, what must I do to inherit eternal life. We often see it as, you know, what's my responsibility? How can I do this? We'll talk more about that in a moment. But Chuck carries on and says, Mark includes a detail that Matthew and Levi failed to mention. And that is, and Jesus, looking upon him, loved him. Now, this has led, and let me just read the quote from Chuck Misery. says, this hints at the possibility that young John Mark himself may have been that rich young man. And certainly there's a number of commentators that feel that this may well have been the case. Certainly Mark came from a wealthy family. Um, we find the, the evidence of that in the book of Acts we see. Um, but it may well be that Mark was that rich young ruler that went to Jesus and asked this question. So just an interesting uh, thought for you. Also, another comment from Chuck Ministry says, an early church tradition suggests that it was Mark who was the certain young man who followed Christ right up to his entry into the house of the high priest. This is when Jesus was arrested and so on, just prior to the crucifixion. Um, And then when the guards tried to lay hold of him, left the linen cloth that he was clothed with in their hands and fled naked. Interestingly, Mark is the only one uh, who included this incident. So Mark puts that in there. Maybe that was Mark. Maybe it was that young man that was following. Uh, Again, wealthy, uh, possibly respected in the community because of his wealth and so on, the family that he was part of. Um, Certainly there is a young man who we're not told specifically who he was, but again, uh, the suggestion has been made by commentators down through the ages that this was Mark himself. So um, Mark may well have been part of all of these things, seeing Jesus go through his ministry and observing all these things. Uh, An eyewitness, no doubt, of all that we're finding recorded in his gospel. Well, according to the early church, Mark's purpose was to write down the gospel as Peter had presented it to the Romans. Now, what we then effectively have is that it's the gospel of Peter. Now, that's quite interesting in itself, because there's a lot of uh, things that we read that really strongly suggest that is the case. So, Mark acting very much as an amenuensis, uh, kind of secretary in a sense, writing down Peter's experiences and the things he went through, and no doubt adding some of his own thoughts as well. Um, But this is very much then Peter's gospel that we're looking at. Um, Mark, and possibly therefore Peter, present Jesus as the perfect servant. But interestingly, the same theme runs through Peter's epistles. And if you look in uh, Peter's epistles, you'll find that Peter will present Jesus as the perfect servant of Jehovah. Uh, the lamb without blemish in First Peter 1.19. The fact that Jesus obeyed his father as a servant should obey his master. First Peter 2 uh, verse 4. And Jesus submitted to the will of his father, again as a perfect servant. First Peter 2.13. And that Jesus is therefore our example of how to serve in First Peter 2.21. Uh, Let's just read that. Servants, says Peter... Be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to good, to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when you are buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if when you do well, you suffer for it, you take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. For even hereunto you are called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us 
an example that you should follow his steps. And it's interesting because Peter then tells us this in his epistle, but in the Gospel of Mark, we have a very similar presentation that really, this is how Christ lived. This is his example, the example we should follow. Interestingly, there's no divine titles that are given uh, to Jesus in this book, which is interesting uh, in this gospel. Uh, No genealogy is given, and once again, no one's really interested in the genealogy of a servant, which seems to be why that's omitted. There's no reference to Christ's birth or to childhood. Again, it's of no consequence for a servant. The visit of the Magi isn't recorded here, and again, no one pays homage to a servant. And there's no Sermon on the Mount or those kind of discourses, because a servant has no kingdom or his own laws. Now I think this is incredible, just to stop and think about the things that are omitted, because it really tells us a lot about our Saviour. That Jesus came and gave up the majesty, the glory of heaven. We were singing this morning of the fact that he became sin who knew no sin. You know, and you realise what Christ gave up. And this presentation we have in Mark is really quite fascinating because it portrays Jesus in a way that the other Gospels don't. And we see that God made flesh, was willing to give up the majesty, the glory, everything he had to come to this earth, to live a life, to be beaten, to be rejected, to be spat upon and so on. And he did it for us. It's an incredible record that we see here. In Philippians 2, 5 to 8, we read this. Let this mind be in you, which also, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient, even unto death, even the death of of the cross. That's what Jesus did for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 just reminds us again, for he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What an incredible condensation that Jesus would, would give up all of that to come here for us. <clears throat> K. Arthur makes this comment, Jesus was clearly born to be king of the Jews, as Matthew points out. However, the gospel was not just for the Jews. It was for the whole world. And before Jesus would reign as king of kings, he would be servant of all by dying for mankind. Mark writes of the works and authority of the one who came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The key verse, really, in a sense, from the Gospel of Mark is Mark chapter 10, verse 45. And we read there, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. It's interesting, you know, so many Christians almost have this uh, um, attitude of, what can I get out of it? You know, regarding the Christian life, regarding church, regarding the times when we meet together. You know, and... Yeah, this is not commenting on you. This is other churches, you know. But the way that sometimes people were like, well, I I didn't really get a lot out of that service this morning. Well, what did you put into it? What did you come to give to God? You know, Jesus came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. 
when we come together, what's your attitude? Is it how much you can be blessed by the worship, by the teaching, by the fellowship? Or is it how much can I give to somebody else in the fellowship this morning? What can I do to encourage somebody or to help somebody or to pray with somebody? Yeah, what are we coming to bring when we meet together? Because we're to be like Christ. We're to follow the example of servanthood that Christ laid down for us. But that verse there, Mark 10.45, very much a, a key verse. And uh, almost you could use it as a summary of the gospel itself. <clears throat> In the Greek, we have this word euthos. It's used 40 times. And it's translated for us forthwith, straight away, immediately. And that's kind of the, very much the, the, kind of the, the, the flavor of Mark's presentation here. Everything is very fast paced. You know, right, forthwith and straight away and immediately. This is the way it goes on and on. The connectives, um, and, now, etc., are used 1,331 times in Mark's gospel. It's just almost without breathing. Mark's just going from one thing to the next thing and to the next thing and to the next thing. The gospel, which means, of course, good news, is actually mentioned eight times. That word is mentioned eight times in Mark's gospel. It's only four times in total by the other three gospel writers combined. Mark records 26 miracles by some reckoning. Um, Some will say a few less, some will say a few more, depending on how you count different things. Um, But certainly, Mark is recording a number of the miracles, far more so than we find elsewhere. But only gives us four parables. So Mark's emphasis is not so much on the parables and the things that Jesus said. Of course we have some of the key things given to us, but very much on what actually happened. Mark uses the historical present tense 150 times, speaking of things that actually took place. So it's like Jesus comes, Jesus says, Jesus heals. Again, all in the the present tense that we find. So Matthew presents what Jesus said. That's what we looked at last week. It's kind of the major discourses are recorded there. Mark, though, as we said already, presents what Jesus did. And it's very interesting in the presentation we see. And it's focused very much on the action and the miracles. Just for information, Luke presents who Jesus was, as in the perfect man. And then John presents who Jesus was, the Son of God. God made manifest in the flesh. So again, they see the beautiful contrast and the the harmony of these Gospels working together. In Mark, we clearly see that the glory of God is not only to be found in his power, his majesty, his might, and his dominion, but the true glory of God is in his grace. What will be the reason for our eternal praise of him? Just think for a moment. When we get to heaven, when we're before the throne, when we're there for eternity, what's going to be the reason that we're going to praise God? Are we going to praise him for creation? Well, yes, we will do that, of course. Are we going to praise him because he's omnipotent, because he's all-powerful, omniscient, he knows everything? Or are we going to be praising him because of his grace? I think that's the reason we'll be praising him. Chuck Nisler says this, Not the awesome attributes that separate his inconceivable nature from us. Not the eternity of his existence. Not the infinitude of his being. Not the omnipotence of his unwearied arm, nor his omniscience that sees to the heart of us, but rather the lowliness and death of Christ are the glory of God. It's quite a a statement, but the more you ponder that, the more you realise that is the way it is. Just a brief overview then of Mark. The first chapter, incredible chapter to get us going. Uh, First of all, John 
um, uh, introduces a certain. This is John the Baptist. Mark presents John the Baptist introduces Jesus as Jesus steps onto the scene, and then God the Father identifies the servant again in the first chapter as Jesus rises out after his baptism, and then we see immediately, and it's interesting because that we get to the temptation which kind of initiates the service. It's all part of this training and preparation for ministry. We have this baptism, and then, as, as we find recorded into the text, immediately, and it's quite interesting how we find that this time of uh, fellowship, or this wonderful moment of baptism, is immediately followed by the temptation. And that's so often the way it is in our lives, that we can't just separate these things. And temptation isn't wrong. We, we will be tempted. It's what we do with the temptation that matters. But again, we mustn't fool ourselves into thinking that we won't be tempted. Uh, we will be tempted. And it so quickly will follow on from the other things. And how Satan will so quickly try and get in and pull us away once God has poured some blessing upon us or done something wonderful in our lives. Still in the first chapter, we read of then the works and uh, the words that illustrate or illuminate, in a sense, the servant. Um, we'll see that briefly in a moment um, and then really we, that takes us to the end of chapter 13 all these, these works and words everything that Jesus is doing as we've said already the miracles which we'll focus on in a moment uh, and then the final chapters from chapter 14 to 16 uh, is the death, burial and resurrection that demonstrate the obedience of the servant that overview, that breakdown is from J. Vernon McGee but I thought it was quite helpful uh, again it just focuses on Jesus as a servant but so much of um, what we see is really in that first chapter and then it really kind of just builds from there <clears throat> another quote from Henrietta C. Mears she says uh, this is a continuous unbroken service of the servant recorded in this gospel we read and he did this and he did that he must teach men they were in darkness he must cheer men they were without hope he must heal men they were sick and suffering he must free men because they were under the power of satan he must pardon and cleanse men because they were sinful and again just that quote thinking back that you know before jesus could come as king of kings he had to come as a servant to give his life as a ransom for many and really again we see that before all of those things jesus had to come and deal with the problem of sin the problem of our human condition. And Mark very much presents that for us very clearly. Now just before we jump in, what's the greatest challenge of this book? Well, I think it's simply this, that Christ as God's faithful servant has done it all. Why is that a challenge to us? Or why should that be a challenge? Well, because it means that he's done everything. There's nothing that we can add. Now, I don't know about you, but that should be offensive to us. Certainly offensive to me. It's something I, I struggle with. That Christ has done everything. You see, it means that the best that we can bring is not acceptable. Our best efforts are worthless. And that's a really hard thing for us as human beings with a sense of pride to take. It means that the best worship that we can play as a band means nothing. It means that spending up, getting, staying up late and studying, getting ready to teach this morning, that effort means nothing. It means the very best that I can bring to God is nothing. And it's the same for all of us in our lives. Whatever we do, you know, this morning after Sunday school, Marla will come back, as she does every week, with something in her hand to show me, wanting approval. She'll be wanting me to say, well done, that's good. 
But you know, we do the best we can. We bring it to God and God says, it's worthless. It's filthy rags. And that's really hard. Because we all like to do something and then be praised for it. You know, for those of you who have day jobs, you'll no doubt have experiences where you do something for your boss. And you'll either be pleased because your boss will acknowledge it, or you'll be rather miffed because your boss doesn't acknowledge it. And then you think, well, he should have acknowledged it. And then you feel rather offended because he hasn't appreciated it. And that's a big part of it. We want to be appreciated for who we are, for what we have. And the challenge of this gospel is that we have to realize that there's nothing that we can bring. The best that we can bring is simply as filthy rags. And that's hard. I, you might not find it hard. I find it really hard because I want to do the best I can with the things that we do for this fellowship. I want to do everything as best and to the, the, the highest uh, level that we could possibly attain. I want to do that because I want to glorify God. And of course, in one sense, there's nothing wrong with wanting to give of our best. We should do all things as unto the Lord. But it's understanding that in terms of our relationship with God, it doesn't mean anything. It's all about the completed work of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing we can bring. We have to just simply come and say, well, Lord, I've got nothing. It's just, here I am. Let's uh, jump into the, the text. And by the way, that was Cain's problem. And it's why grace changes everything. There's a great book by Chuck Smith uh, by that title, Why Grace Changes Everything. We'll talk about that a bit more in just a moment. So let's just jump into the first chapter. We read Mark chapter 1 verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, behold I send my messenger before thy face which shall prepare thy way before thee. Quoting from Isaiah and this is about the only quote we have, really, um, from the Old Testament. There's a few allusions elsewhere. Um, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord, and make his paths straight. So Mark opens with this declaration, really speaking of John the Baptist who would come, who would be this messenger, who would prepare God's way. And the message, in a sense, is the servant king is coming. Repair the road, prepare the way. You know, in our own lives, you know, are we aware that God is coming? I mean, imagine being at this time in Israel and the situation, the Messiah was coming. And, you know, we see it sometimes. Back in, uh, in Deal, where I used to live, um, there was an ancient highway that used to connect Deal and Sandwich, and I used to use it cycling to work uh, years ago. Uh, yes, I used to do exercise a long time back. Um, and every now and again, they'd have kind of golf uh, tournaments and things. Now the Open Golf Championship in Sandwich and so on. And every now and again they would prepare the road. They'd repair it, fill in all the potholes and so on. And then for another six years or so it would just, just fall apart. It was, because it was a, an ancient highway, it wasn't a main road or anything. Uh, very few cars ever used it. And it would just become a right mess again. Uh, so you cycle trying to avoid all the potholes on the route. You know, but again, when something special was happening, they would prepare, they'd get the, the machines out, and they'd fix the holes and everything else and make it ready. And in a sense, that's what John was saying. You know, we should get things ready, the king is coming. Be ready for this, this one who is coming. You know, we live in a world that is so far away from even the thought of God. Um, but John came onto the scene challenging people, challenging the leaders of the nation to get things ready. <clears throat> Just picking up verse 14. Now after that John was put in prison, so we have this record of John the Baptist being arrested, put in prison and so on, Jesus came into Galilee. And this is now the start of Jesus' ministry, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent you and believe the gospel. 
What does Jesus mean by this? The time is fulfilled. Well, really, it's a declaration that the promise made back in Genesis 3.15 had reached its fruition. Genesis 3.15, you remember the situation where after the fall, it's declared that a seed would come. One who would bruise the head of the serpent. This one who would be the saviour. And Jesus comes onto the scene and declaring, the time is fulfilled. We finally got to this time. And Jesus' life and ministry become the fulfilment of this and ultimately his death on the cross and resurrection. The fulfilment of what was promised way back then. And of course we've gone through a few thousand years of history. You know, some 2,000 years or so back to Abraham from this point, And then a further 1,656 years, uh, as it were, uh, going back from the time of the flood back to creation. All of that time had elapsed and God had been working organizing and arranging and putting everything in place so that the Messiah, so that the seed could come. And now Jesus steps onto the scene and says, the time is fulfilled. Now is the time. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then calling people to repent and believe the good news. And of course we see this expanded as we go through. Well, we then see the calling. This is all still in chapter 1, a really incredible uh, chapter, how much Mark packs in here. But then, Verse 16, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting an head into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come you after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straight away they forsook their nets and followed him. And then we carry on. And when he'd gone, uh, <coughs> when he'd gone a little further thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the ship mending their nets. And straight away he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. Now, once again, this is grace. The wonderful work of grace. It was Jesus that saw them. It was Jesus that called them. It was Jesus that made them into what they became. Yeah, they had skills. They'd learned how to be fishers of men. And Jesus says, you know, everything you've learned, I'm going to turn that around. And I'm going to use that for me. But it's not anything you can bring, it's what I'm going to do that's going to make the difference. And it's the same with us. Jesus saw us. He chose us. He's appointed us that we should bear fruit. That's just encouraging in itself, that he has appointed us that we should bear fruit. It's his work. It's all about him. Again, nothing we can add. Well then, carrying on in chapter 1, we come... To the situation where he gets to the synagogue, he went to Capernaum straight away on the Sabbath day. So again, one of these straightaways. Immediately he gets there, he goes straight to the synagogue. On the Sabbath day, he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. <laughs> this is so interesting in terms of the light of the world we live in and the religious systems that we have around us. You know, see, the Word of God was revealing the Word of God. It doesn't get better than that. Jesus, the Word of God made flesh, flesh, was in the synagogue revealing to them the Word of God, speaking with authority of God's Word. You know, you compare today's scribes, and there's many of them, the think they know, to the Word churches. By that I mean the churches that truly stand on God's Word and teach God's Word. Not just teach a variety of opinions and ideas and philosophies and, you know, kind of uh, motivational kind of uh, mantras and stuff that we see so often put forward as if it's supposed to be the gospel. 
You know, there are many churches that really have become not much more than self-help classes. And we see it all over the country, in this country, we see it all over the world. And you compare those churches, you compare what they're saying, their leaders, the scribes in those places, to churches where God's word is taught. Because it's not about the one who's teaching. The authority doesn't lie with the teacher, it lies in that which is taught. And if that which is taught is God's word, there's authority, there's power. But if that which is being taught is man's opinion, well, we've all got opinions. So Jesus steps onto the scene and again starting to make an immediate impression. And we look at the miracles then that we see recorded in Mark because it gives us a kind of a good journey through um, the Gospel of Mark itself. And the first miracle, as we mentioned already, in chapter 1, um, picking up verse 21, uh, they came, uh, sorry, they went to Capernaum and straight away on the Sabbath day he entered the synagogue and taught. Uh, they were astonished at his doctrine, as we saw. And verse 23 says, And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone, what have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thou, uh, the, who thou art, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebukes him, tells him to be quiet, and this individual is healed. This is in the synagogue. It's an incredible situation. That's the first miracle. Well then, we get a little bit later on, verse 30, and um, <clears throat> verse 30 says, But Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever, and anon they tell him of her. And he came and took her uh, hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she ministered unto them. So this is the second miracle that Jesus does. And then we carry on also still in chapter 1. There's so much in chapter 1. You could spend a week just studying all the little things that Mark packs in here. Picking up verse 32. Uh, and even when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased and all them that were possessed with devils. And all the city was gathered at the door. And this was just an absolutely amazing situation. As Jesus has arrived at Capernaum, and suddenly this miracle in the synagogue, Peter's mother-in-law's made well, and now everybody's starting to come and hearing about this Jesus who's saving people, who's, who's uh, healing them and setting them free. Verse 39, uh, and he preached uh, in the synagogues throughout all Galilee and cast out devils. Just a kind of a... A little almost throwaway verse that, that Mark puts in there for us. It's amongst everything else. He doesn't give us specific details. It almost implies there was just so much going on. I haven't got time to record it all now, but this is what Jesus was doing. And you see that Jesus has come to meet the human needs. You know, already in chapter 1, we've seen somebody that was oppressed by the devil set free. Somebody who's sick, healed. And again, the sick and the possessed, this demon possessed. Jesus comes and meets us right where we are. And this is just again in the first chapter. And then, the big one. The leper healed and sent to the priest. Now this really got attention. Now not to say the miracles before that didn't, but lepers had never been healed. Do you know, up until this point, there had never been a leper healed in Israel. Of course we have the record of Nahum in, um, back in Kings. And this Syrian who comes down to the land and goes uh, to see... Uh, Elisha and so on, he's told to bathe in the Jordan, doesn't want to do that because Jordan's dirty and muddy. And eventually he humbles himself, he does it, and he's healed and cleansed. But he wasn't, he wasn't Jewish, he wasn't from Israel. And in the Torah, we find that there is a specific instruction given 
as to what should happen when a leper's cleansed. Now, no priest has ever had to look at this or deal with it. There were certain things the priest had to do. There was checks they had to go through to see if this healing was genuine. And they would put the individual outside the camp for seven days and then they'd bring them back and they'd check them and they'd look at the colour of the spot or the scab and so on and they'd make their judgement. It never happened. And suddenly, Jesus heals this leper. And the interesting thing is, he doesn't just heal the leper, he sends him to the priest. Now, we've talked before how leprosy is a type in scripture, a model in the sense of sin. It was the incurable disease. Nobody had been healed from this disease. It's a disease that would just eat away at the flesh. (laughs) It typically wasn't a painful disease. You didn't really notice it, other than the fact that it was eating away at your flesh. Isn't that just a type of sin? It's just the same for us, that sin will eat away at his flesh. We don't necessarily feel the effects of it until it's way too late. And again, it was that incurable disease. But Jesus heals this individual of his leprosy, sends him to the priest, who no doubt went scurrying back to look through the Torah scrolls to see what he should do now. And truly, this man had been healed. And just the same, we can go straight to our priest, who confirms that we're healed because of his completed work on the cross because of the blood that was shed. It's just these beautiful pictures that we find all through this. So chapter 1, an amazing chapter of the the miracles we have. Again, Jesus meeting every single need. And the most important need is the healing of our sin, the saving us from the iniquity and the transgression. Again, just to clarify, the Bible speaks of sin, iniquity, and transgression. Those three things. They're not exclusively the same. Sin is missing the mark. And we do that all the time. We miss the mark. Transgression is crossing the line, the boundaries that God has set. And then iniquity is that twisted nature that we have that's come all the way down from Adam. Well, Jesus deals with all of that. Chapter 2, we find that the paralytic is lowered down through the roof. You know the, the account, they're in the house together. And these people want to bring this, this friend of theirs who's uh, so sick he can't move of himself. And so they start taking the tiles off the roof. They lower this individual down. And the first 12 verses of chapter 2 uh, address that. And it's the first mention there, by the way, also that Jesus can forgive sins. Now, whilst we're seeing all these miracles, see also that the priests and the attitude towards Jesus by the religious leadership starts to intensify. Because there's enough in the first chapter to really get them a bit hot under the collar and really kind of asking questions. And now, Jesus claims that he can forgive sins. Now to them, that's abhorrent. No man should be able to do that. Well, of course, Jesus wasn't just a man. He was God. So we carry on in chapter 3. In the first five verses, we've then got a man... Again, in the synagogue with a withered hand. Jesus doesn't seem to leave the religious leaders alone in through this. He's going, oh, these things right in front of them. Now the problem with that is, it's on the Sabbath. So not only has he now done these miracles, he's healed of this individual of leprosy and the other things, he's stated that he can forgive sin, and now on the Sabbath he's also healing people in the synagogue of all places. Fancy that. And then we read of the multitudes in verse 10 of chapter 3, uh, that are healed uh, in and around the Galilee region. It just, uh, we read, let's read that. For he, uh, for he had healed many, insomuch that they pressed upon him, for to touch him as many as had plagues. And again, this is all in that area uh, around the Galilee. These people are just thronged to come close to Jesus, to touch him, to be near him. You know, that should be our attitude. 
when we realize just how wonderful, how amazing this individual is, you know, we should throng around him. We should want to be near him. When we hear of what he's done, and actually, you know, what was happening is people were being healed and they were telling people about it. And the word of mouth was spreading. And people wanted to come and hear and see and touch this Jesus. Well, you know, that's our mission as a church. To tell people what he's done for us. To tell people that he's healed us. That he saved us from our sin. And people should hear. And they should be saying, can I come to your church? I want to come along. I want to meet this Jesus. This is what was happening in the Gospels. It should be the same for us. Verse 11 tells us, And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. Now, we should just take comfort in that. These unclean spirits, they were falling down before Jesus, before the one that we love and worship. The disciples we find then are endued with power. And by the way, I don't believe that's the same power that we're given. This was very specific for a particular task that the Lord had called them to. But then the scribes, as a result of this, charged Jesus that he was casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the lord of the flies, this, this uh, demonic power. Of course, Jesus will rebuke them for that later. Chapter 4, Jesus then calms the waves. As the disciples are uh, in the boat, they're concerned. <laughs> and Jesus then calms the waves, this... this uh, situation on the sea um, chapter 5 well we have this demonic of uh, Gardea as Jesus crossed over now to the other side uh, the opening um, verses of this chapter deal with this individual that's healed um, and of course we recognise that the situation the pigs then are the, the ones who end up receiving these uh, demonic spirits and they go climbing or flying off the, the cliff into the sea they go swimming interesting of course that pigs are not kosher and my question has often been why were these Jewish farmers because Jesus was still going to the Jews yes it was a, an area where they'd been very uh, if we may use today's vernacular westernised um, it was a very kind of Greek type of culture at that time. But they were still Jewish people. Why were they looking after pigs? Well, probably because they knew it brought in money. It's interesting that Jesus ends up not just setting this individual free, but then destroying the the source of their income because it was made of money that was from the world. And I'm not... Of course, we, we all, in a sense, earn our money from the world. But it's a case of how we earn that money. Do we do it in a way that's pleasing to God? In a way that's honoring to God? We then get to an interesting situation with uh, verse 25 to 34 of chapter 5. We have this woman, and some commentators suggest that this individual, this lady, was a Gentile. Now, if that's the case, and they have various reasons for that from the text and so on, uh, if that is the case, then it's interesting because we find that Jesus was actually en route to heal Jairus' daughter, who was a 12-year-old girl. And this woman had been sick with this issue of blood for 12 years. They both occurred at the same time. That's no coincidence. Now, if that is the case, that this woman was a Gentile, there's an interesting model that on the way to raise this Jewish daughter, this Jewish girl, Jesus heals this Gentile woman. And there's a a picture there you could make of the church being healed and rescued whilst Jesus was en route, as it were, uh, to to deal with and to save and raise up Israel. So, I don't want to make too much of that, um, but that's just, uh, some commentators will uh, put that forward as a suggestion for you. So, we jump forward into chapter 6 now. Only a few at Nazareth are actually then healed. And this is interesting. First five and six, and he could not uh, do. He could do no mighty work, save uh, that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. If they didn't believe, 
They didn't, it wasn't they, they didn't have faith to believe in the miracle. They didn't believe in Jesus. You see, it's not having faith as such. It's the object of our faith that's the issue. If our faith is in Jesus, that's where it needs to be. And they didn't believe in Jesus. And interestingly, very little is done there. But then verse 12 to 14, uh, we read uh, these uh, disciples that are sent out. And they went out and preached uh, that men should repent. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. So again, just the Lord giving to his disciples his power to go and uh, deliver and heal and so on, meeting every need. Now as a result of this, Herod hears of all that's going on. He thinks that John has risen from the dead. Uh, because of this, if you remember that uh, John had spoken against his uh, uh, adulterous relationship with his brother's wife, who he ends up marrying and so on, uh, and had John put to death and so on. Well, we carry on. Um, we get to verse 32 of chapter 6, and we get to the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, they departed into a desert place by ship privately, and the people saw them depart, and many knew him and ran afoot there, there out of all the cities, um, and outwent them and came together unto him. And so we read of the situation that they're, they're hungry, and Jesus, verse 37, he answered and said unto them, Give you uh, them to eat. And they said unto him, Shall we go and buy 200 penny worth of bread and give to them to eat? It's interesting, isn't it? We're always looking for our own resource to solve the problems. And that's what the disciples did here. You know, again, it's about grace. It's not about what we have. We should never try and do things out of our sufficiency, out of our abundance. And that's what the disciples are trying to do. Lord, how can we help you solve this problem? Jesus said, no, what have you got? And he wasn't even interested. I mean, Jesus could have made the, the food out of nothing. He didn't need the little they could bring. But Jesus used that which they had. As by way of encouraging them and helping them. You know, it's, it's a bit like I was talking to somebody this week and uh, at work, and the question just came up about um, in Scripture when God asks questions. You know, is it because God doesn't know the answer? No, it's because God wants us to think. When God asks questions, when you see questions in the Word of God, you know, God doesn't need the things that we have. When He chooses to use them, well, it's because He wants to encourage us and cause us to grow and lead us on. In verse 49 of chapter 6, Jesus then walks on the water, and then we find the second calming of the waves. This is the occasion, of course, when uh, Peter steps out of the boat, coming to Jesus. Uh, you can actually make a number of miracles out of the whole of this, because, of course, Jesus does walk on the water. Peter is sustained on top of the water, um, and then uh, the waves are calmed also. And so on. You know, interesting, I think it's Oswald Chambers that makes a comment, that Peter had this kind of perception that all the time he's above the water, he's safe. And he starts sinking and he cries out. And also Chambers just asks the question, could not Jesus have sustained him under the water as well? And it's like, well, yeah, of course he could. But you see, we like to have it in our way. You know, we like to have it all nice and neat and the boxes ticked by our understanding of things. And sometimes God doesn't work that way. Sometimes the Lord will even allow us to go under the water. But he can still sustain us there as well. I mean, Jonah's a case in point. So we get to chapter 7. In chapter 7, um, Syrophoenician's daughter is then freed. Uh, again, as Jerob was highlighting, you know, Jesus hasn't specifically gone to, to speak to these people, but this individual comes up, and as a result of her faith, um, her daughter's healed. The deaf and dumb man healed as well. This is the one that Jerob shared with you this morning. <clears throat> then in chapter 8, 
feeding of the 4,000 this time. It's very interesting. The feeding of the 5,000, there's a very Jewish overtone to that. Twelve baskets of uh, food are collected. The feeding of the 4,000, seven. Not the twelves, the sevens, the Jews, the Gentiles. Very interesting the way these things play out. Then we have the blind man that's healed. Again, that's a double miracle, by the way. And uh, indebted to uh, Dr. Vij Sidira, many of you know Vij. And uh, he shared with us once, the initial miracle here, this man's sight is restored. And the question is asked, what can you see? And he says, I see men walking around like trees. Well, I don't know if you know, but you actually see upside down. But your brain converts the image so that when you actually get to your brain, what you're perceiving is that you're seeing everything the right way up. But your eyes actually see everything inverted. It's your brain that corrects that. And what this man sees, and by the way, not that I've done it, I'm not sure if the vision's actually done it, but if you apparently stand on your head for two weeks, your vision will actually switch and you'll then see the other way up. If you want to try that, by all means, have a go. Um, but um, what then happens is the individual has his sight restored, but because his eyes have not been working, he's seeing everything upside down. Interesting, if you look up everything upside down, it will look like men are walking around, it will look like trees, because you're looking at their legs, it looks like tree stumps. But then the second miracle is Jesus corrects that vision. And immediately, that which would normally take two weeks is done instantly. It's interesting because I just mentioned that. Some people will say, well, why didn't Jesus heal him properly the first time? Didn't he not have enough power to do it right? No, no, no. There's two things going on here. Just be aware of that. It's quite interesting. Well, we jump to chapter 9. The transfiguration. I mean, that in itself is just amazing. As Jesus is on uh, the top of, uh, what we believe, Mount Hermon, up the top of uh, North Israel... And, of course, Moses and Elijah appear and so on. Then he comes down from the mountain. And it's this situation, this demoniac who's set free. And the question is asked, why couldn't the disciples deal with this? And Jesus says, this type doesn't come forth but by prayer and fasting. Why did Jesus make that point? Well, because you need to understand, Jesus hadn't been up that mountain praying and fasting for this situation. Jesus had been praying and fasting... Because that was his way of life. Jesus was just close to his father. And whatever situation came before him, he was ready to deal with it. You see, what we often do is we do it from the other side. We wait till there's a crisis and then we pray and fast. And then we do it by kind of a, well, if I pray and fast, then God will owe me one and therefore he might listen to me. That's not quite the way it works. You know, it should be about a relationship with God. We should be close to God and we'll hear him as we, we're in these situations and God will encourage us to just go and pray with that person. Just go and do this or say that. But that comes from being close to God, not by after the event suddenly going in a panic. Jesus had been praying and fasting and he comes down, he's met with this situation, immediately he deals with it. Chapter 10, we have Bartimaeus there, receives his sight. In chapter 11, Jesus curses the fig tree. This kind of brings to an end, um, specifically, this long list of miracles uh, that we have given to us. Every one of these things, Jesus is addressing the human need, the human condition. Addressing us right where we are. You should quite easily be able to find yourself a number of times in those miracles. And look at your own life, look at your own situation, and see what the Lord is saying to you. I encourage you just to read through those over the coming week. Have a, uh, just a bit of time before the Lord. And see those things. And see that Jesus can meet every need. And you don't have to do anything. Just simply be humble enough to come before him. So the fig tree. 
This then is uh, obviously typically a symbol of Israel and so on, and uh, we can make a lot of that, but for this morning, the purpose, this occurs on the Monday of Passion Week. So all of the gospel so far has been leading up to this point. And so we get to this, this point here, Mark 11 now, um, and we have the fig tree curse. Mark's gospel is very interesting because it gives us a great breakdown of the events of Passion Week, typically. Now, first of all, the triumphal entry, Mark records that for us. So that would have been on the Sunday. It's one of the few things tradition actually gets right. It was on a Sunday. And then Mark tells us, and in the evening, when the evening was come, he went out to Bethany. So we're given the details when the evening was come, so we know that's the evening. And then we're told, on the morrow, the next day, they came to Bethany. So now we know when this fig tree situation occurs. And then we come down to the evening. In the evening, they went out of the city. So Mark is giving us a very clear day-by-day account, moment-by-moment almost, of what's going on during this week. So they go back out to Bethany where they're staying, which will become Jesus' camp, if you like, for this week. And then in the morning, we're told, and this is Mark 11, verse 20, uh, when they passed by, they saw that the fig tree dried up from the roots. And they asked the question, Peter asked the question, and so on about that. And then we have this statement, after two days, it says, was the feast of the Passover. The feast of has been inserted by the translators. And it's not wrong, but it's not actually helpful either. Um, What the text actually says is, after two days was the Passover. Now the reason it's important to understand the distinction between the Passover and the feast of the Passover is because they can refer to different things. The Passover could refer to just the supper which would take place on the, the, the eve or the, the Jewish day, the 14th would be as the evening starts on that particular day, uh, which is when the 14th of the month when the Passover was to take place. So the Passover could be a reference to the feast, but it could also be a reference to the festival if we used the feast of Passover. And that wouldn't occur until the next day. So typically when we get to the 15th, this will become your first day off work, as it were, a bit like Christmas is. And so that's the first actual day of the feast. So it's important to understand the terms, but Mark makes it very clear. It gives us two days until the Passover, and he's referencing the actual the festival celebration here uh, is what he's referring to. And he's the same as Luke and John also use the same uh, terminology. We then get to the next day. And Mark then tells us of the situation uh, when it was even. They would come, the disciples. And Jesus wanted to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. Now this is quite important because some people have suggested that Jesus had a separate meal. It wasn't the Passover. Mark makes it very clear that they ate the Passover together. Um, and the disciples went made the room ready and everything else. And, and it, where after that, they then went out to the Mount of Olives and so on. Uh, and Jesus highlighted the fact that one of them was to betray him, which was also Judas and so on. We know the details. We then get to the day of the crucifixion, which would have been on the Thursday of that week. Uh, Mark, again, highlights these details for us uh, and tells us that uh, it was a day of preparation. So the day that Jesus died was referred to as the day of preparation because they were preparing things for this celebration, which began, in some senses, on the 15th, which was the first day off work. First day that you weren't allowed to do any work whatsoever. On the day of preparation, they would be getting their food ready, their spices ready, and everything else. Um, and that's why they get Jesus into the ground before uh, the night becomes, or before the next day effectively begins, because they can't do anything. And that's why they can't anoint Jesus' body either on that evening. 
And so they have to wait for the first opportunity to come back. And then we get to the first day of the week. And by the way, these Mark also alludes to us that these both days here, the 15th and the 16th of this week, uh, this is in the in our uh, sorry, in the Jewish calendar uh, of Nissan, 14th and 15th of Nissan, uh, the. Um, these, both these days were Sabbath days. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, a specific day on the 15th of the month that's given to us, both in uh, Exodus, in Leviticus 23 and elsewhere. Um, so this is the 15th day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a very specific day where no work was to be done. The next day was a Saturday, to, uh, which was again was a Jewish Sabbath, no work could be done. So the first opportunity that the women would have to come to the tomb would be on the Sunday morning, which is why they get up early. And on that day, they go to the tomb and they anoint Jesus' body. Or they go to, with the intention of anointing Jesus' body. Of course, when they get there, they find that the grave is empty. Um, and we have reference again in Mark 10.34 um, that it would be the third day that Jesus would rise again. And so you see Mark uh, is very helpful for us in putting all these details together. Uh, becomes very much a, um, a, a, a tour guide through Passion Week, as it were. Okay, I want to just, just spend the last few minutes just briefly just looking at the last 12 verses of Mark. Let me just read them to you very quickly. Now, when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. Um, she went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and that he had been seen of her, believed not. After that he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it uh, unto the residue, neither believed they them. Afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat, and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Jesus now speaking, Go you into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believes not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. And they shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. So that after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat uh, on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. And that's how Mark signs off and ends his gospel. Now, I just want to highlight this because some versions, these verses are omitted. And there's a, a contention because there's a footnote that's given that says that that section we've just read is not in the most reliable manuscripts. Or the most reliable early manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have, Mark. That's actually a quote uh, out of one of the Bibles they've got, one of the footnotes. So sometimes you actually find it's completely there. It's not there at all in your Bible. You may, it depends on which version you have. You may or may not have it. Some Bibles don't have that at all. Others will have a footnote saying, effectively, probably shouldn't be there. We don't know. It's not trustworthy. Now, why the controversy? Well, the contention, believe it or not, dates back to just about 150 years ago. Two men by the name of Westcott and Hall, you may have come across them before. And they argued that these verses were of a later edition and they weren't in the original text. Now, these two men 
Westcott and Hort themselves were both Anglican churchmen. They had contempt for the received text, which is the, the text that led to uh, the King James Version, the New King James uses, and so on. Uh, this makes up about 5,000 manuscripts that have been handed down from the early church. Well, these two individuals began a work in 1853. After about 28 years, they came up with their own version, but it was based upon two corrupt versions, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Uh, the Vaticanus is held in the Vatican today. Uh, Pilus Sinaiticus is held um, in the British Li- Museum, in, in, uh, sorry, in the British Library up in London. Now, both of these individuals were influenced by Oregon, who was, uh, dates back to the early church times, and others who denied the deity of Christ. And they embraced the prevalent Gnostic heresies from the period of uh, the headquarters of the Gnostics in Alexandra. So these manuscripts came from a place where typically people denied the deity of Jesus Christ. And that's where these manuscripts have their source. There's over 3,000 contradictions in the four Gospels alone between those manuscripts. And they changed the traditional Greek text in 8,413 places. Now, again... We all make our choices, but I should point this out. You need to know this, because if somebody ever challenges you and says, oh, those verses shouldn't be there, you need to know the facts behind this. Now, again, Westcott and Holt rejected those verses, as do many modern translations, and yet the verses are quoted by Arrhenius in his commentary, which dates back to 150 AD. Now, how did he guess ahead of time that somebody was going to pen that later? It doesn't make any sense. They had to have existed then. They're also quoted uh, by Hippolytus in uh, the 2nd century AD. These texts definitely existed. They were part of the canon of Scripture back then, no question. They, They had to have been there. Otherwise they couldn't have been quoted. Clearly they did exist before, they existed several hundred years before the Alexandrian manuscripts were produced, which incidentally miss out a number of other things as well. Um, just as a, an aside, just to give you a bit of confidence in this, those last 12 verses, we've got the appearance to Mary and the disciples' disbelief. That's one, one little section, verse 9 to 11. The subsequent appearances, verse 11 to 18. And then the last little section from 19 to 20. That's one way you can break that down. Or you can look at the first part of that, verses 9 to 14, as a simple narrative. Uh, verses 15 to 18 as Christ's discourse, and then the conclusion again. So depending on how you break it down, why am I telling you this? Because... Remember with Matthew, we were looking at how the sevens just permeate everything? Well, in these last 12 verses, there's 175 words, which is 7 times 25. The vocabulary, there's 98 words used, which is 7 times 14. There's actually 553 letters, which is 7 times 79. The number of vowels, a multiple of 7. The number of consonants, a multiple of 7. Again, I mentioned the total vocabulary, but the words that are only found before a mark, 84, which is 7 times 12. The words that are only found in this little section is, again, 14, 7 times 2. The words that are used in the section that Jesus speaks, 42 words. Uh, so that's 7 times 6. Not part of his vocabulary, 56 words, which is 7 times 8. Again, the total of words you've seen. But the, the address of the Lord, the rest of the passage, all of these things, the words that are unique are all multiples of sevens. There's no way you could manufacture this on your own. If you look at the value, you know that Greek letters have values? Well, if you add up the values, everything, and I'm not going to go through all these in detail, they'll be in the PowerPoint slides if you want to go through it, but every single thing you could possibly think of um, is a multiple of seven. The first word, the middle word, the last word, everything, multiples of sevens. Again, 
ones that are not found before in Mark, the ones that are found later in the New Testament. Okay, a multiple of seven. The occurrences uh, of those, uh, the numeric values, the vocabulary previously here and only found here. Again, all multiples of sevens. I just want to underline the fact that this isn't something that was added later, as some people have tried to say. You need to remember that way back in the Garden of Eden, the devil challenged Eve with that question. Did God really say? You know, it's been going on ever since. And there will be many more attacks on the word of God. But as been pointed out before, many hammers have been blunted on the anvil of God's word. And uh, it's a situation that will continue. Interestingly, the word deadly there, um, talking about the people can drink stuff that's deadly and so on and not be harmed. Of course, we have an example with Paul in the, in the, in the book of Acts where he actually was bitten by a snake, threw off into fire, and he was okay. Just as this verse actually tells us could happen, would happen. But this word is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. Again, it has a numerical value which is divisible by seven and so on. Next time we're going to jump into the Gospel of Luke. But I just want to just close by just saying one thing. Because this whole idea of servanthood is so important. It, we, we should serve. We should seek to serve. We should follow Christ's example as we see there in the Gospel of Mark presented very, very coherently for us. But you know, our relationship with God is not just about service. It's not just about us coming to worship. We've not been saved so that we can do things. That's not the point. You know, I didn't get married to Joy so she could worship me. You know, I don't get home and she, oh, Barry, you're home. I'm so glad you're home. You know, I mean, she's pleased I'm home, but she doesn't worship me. And I didn't marry her for that. You know, God hasn't saved us just so that we would worship him. The reason I married Joy was so we can have a wonderful, loving, intimate relationship together. And that's what God wants from each of us. You know, and the idea of service as well. I didn't marry Joy so she could serve me. Honestly, I didn't. That's not the point. She may argue that. but No, we, you see, God hasn't called us into a relationship so that we can just do things, serve him. It's like children as well. Children are not there to worship us. We don't have children to worship us. You know, my girls, when I get home, they don't go, Daddy, you're the greatest, I'm so glad you're home. You know, they, they don't do that. They're just, it's a relationship, it's a love. You know, any of you who've got children know that you don't have children to serve you either. They don't do that. God doesn't want a relationship to be based upon just the worship or service. Of course that should come, it should be a natural part of the relationship. But the, the key is, God wants us to have a relationship with him through Jesus. That's the key. And out of that will come the service. That's why Jesus served the way he did. Because of the relationship he had with his father. And it wasn't a burden. It wasn't a challenge. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the lessons that we have here. But Lord, help us to learn this most important lesson that you want to have a relationship with us. The reason that Jesus gave up his throne, that he came to this earth as a servant. The reason he addressed every single need that the human condition can bring forward. The reason all of those things were dealt with was so that we can have a relationship with you. Oh Father, please speak to our hearts this morning. Challenge us on this that we would lay aside all attempts to bring anything of ourselves, any effort 
any service, Lord, and just to bring ourselves and to learn to walk with you in a relationship of love. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.